Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. We're so glad you have interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ for Disciples Making Disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Were you aware that there is a book that is so much the bestseller that bestseller lists intentionally keep it off the list since if it were on there, no other book would be able to compete with it? That book is the Bible. Most everybody in the Western world heard of the Bible, probably know that it's an important book for Christianity. But what is the Bible? What is this book we call the Bible? What is its standing and value in Christianity? What should be done with it? And how can we avoid abusing it? Will be the subject we're going to explore today. What is the Bible? Well, Bible comes from the Greek word biblia, and that means books. So the Bible really is the books. That is, a specific collection of books, which we call the Old and New Testaments. In the Old and New Testaments together, there's 66 books. The first and largest section is called the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Testament is like kind of in last will and testament. It's a record of a person's directives. In this case, God's directives. The later term used for the collection. In the earlier times, they were known by kind of three sections. The Torah, the law or the instruction, we call Genesis through Deuteronomy generally. The Nevi'im or prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel through 2 Kings, excuse me, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And the Ketuvim or the writings, which is everything else that we consider in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And from this comes the term Tanakh, from Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And the Old Testament is a collection of Israel's holy writings or scriptures written mostly in Hebrew, with a few Aramaic sections from about 1450 to 420 before Jesus. We today consider them 39 books, but in previous days, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles were each one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was considered one book, and many collections put the 12 prophets, Hosea through Malachi, as one book as well, uh, drastically uh, reducing the number of books involved. The second section is called the New Testament, which is a collection of 27 books written about the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus of Nazareth, who believed to be the Christ. These books feature the life of Jesus of Nazareth, which is the Gospels, the proclamation of his kingdom in Acts, and the letters or epistles written by the apostles. Now, those letters can be broken down themselves. The first section of letters are often called Pauline because Paul wrote them from Romans through Philemon. And even within uh, Paul's letters, the First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, sometimes also Philemon, are considered pastoral letters because he's writing about uh, matters of ministry. The second section of letters are called Catholic or Universal, not in terms of Roman Catholicism, but because they're sent to everybody, because uh, there's a wider range of people to whom those authors wrote, and that would be Hebrews through Revelation. Revelation itself is written as a letter, but contains an apocalyptic vision. That's why we often call it an apocalypse. Now, the New Testament was written what's called Koine Greek during the first century, probably between around the years 40 through 95. That, in short, is the Bible. All right, so that's the Bible, right? So what makes the Bible so important? Is there some quality of holiness in the leather and the pages? Why do all Bibles have holy Bible written on them? It's not just Bibles, holy Bible, right? On every single one of them. We get an idea of why the Bible is so important from what it has to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, we get in verse 14, 
continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, Paul says that the Scripture, Old New Testament, are profitable for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. It equips the man of God for every good work, and they can make a person wise to salvation. And so the Scriptures are breathed out by God. And used also inspired in other translations. So they're inspired message. So what does that mean? Well, it's a theological principle about God that we need to keep in mind. That God is greater than we are. And all that we can know of Him are the things that He's made known to us. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to our Lord, Lord our God. But the things He has made known belong to us and to our children forever. In Isaiah 55, 9 and 10, that God is, is, is God is higher than man. The heavens are higher than the earth, so His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways and our ways. In Romans chapter 1, we're told that God has made himself known to a degree in the things that have been made. But there's a fundamental principle that runs throughout the pages of what we call the Bible. That God has spoken through representatives that he has chosen for the purpose. They are often known as the prophets, Hebrews 1.1. And in the days before Jesus, these servants, the prophets, discern the voice of the Holy Spirit moving in them. And in that way communicated the word of Yahweh. To the people. Second Peter 1, 19-21, Peter says, Scripture is not of private interpretation, but that uh, the prophets uh, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now in these days, God has spoken to us through Jesus in John 1. And 1, he is the Word who has become flesh in verse 14, and has made known God in verse 18, and in Hebrews 1, 1, that's the whole point of the Hebrew author. Jesus himself selected twelve apostles to establish the purposes of his kingdom and to make known the proclamation of the gospel. He promised the Spirit to empower them to do so. Matthew 18, 18, in the beginning of Acts. And the substance of all these messages from these prophets and apostles are written down and have become scripture. Now the words of the prophets are written down by the prophets themselves or by those who were associated with them. Later prophets were directed to set forth the story of Israel to be told as God intended to be told. Those are the books we call history, but interestingly in the tradition has been known as the historical prophets who are writing uh, in the Old Testament. The apostles and their associates wrote down the letters, the story of Jesus' life, and the events surrounding the early church. And thus we believe God inspired this process, that God spoke through the people, God directed their words to be written down for the benefit of later generations on whom this fullness of time had come. That's exactly what Paul says about Scripture. It's been written for our encouragement. We may have hope in Romans 15 and verse 4. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, he talks about the events that took place in the days of Israel and they're written for our instruction. Uh, that the prophets were really serving those of the first century in 1 Peter 1, 10-12, because they're writing out what would, have ha- what would happen to the Christ. And as we saw again in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, the prophets are spoke as the Holy Spirit carries them by the will of God. And so in this way, uh, Christians believe that God inspired the original authors and the original manuscripts of Scripture. Which leads us to a bit of a challenge, because the original authors are long dead, and the manuscripts we have of Scripture are not original, but copies of copies. 
And this is why we have to stress the importance of what we call lower textual criticism. A lower textual criticism is the attempt to consider different manuscripts, uh, copies that have been made of Scripture, and establish which readings are more faithful to the original uh, than others. And we need to be very careful about this because it's been very easy for people who are trying to push an agenda to either understate or overstate the issue. On the one hand, the transmission of the Bible from the first century to now testifies to how God has used his power to preserve his message. For over 1,500 years, from the day it was written until the printing press, uh, late 15th century, um, the Bible is copied by hand in many places in different languages, and the copies maintain around 90% consistency. Now, if you want to see the text that is most quote-unquote corrupt, just pick up a King James Version of the Bible, which is translated from uh, uh, some manuscripts that are of not the greatest quality in terms of reflecting all the original variants. Uh, and But you can understand the gospel message from the King James Version. Uh, that the differences that do exist are not significant enough to really challenge any matter of the faith. But there are some variants of note, and it's important to keep the fact that there could be manuscript differences in mind when we're trying to understand a passage. Uh, for instance, in Mark 16, 9-20, there are some questions of whether or not that is the authentic ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we should not build any doctrine only on the basis of its witness. It's not saying it, it should not be considered as a witness, but we just should be very careful about using that as a singular witness. Uh, for instance, also in Mark 15:28, some of the most ancient manuscripts don't have that verse, which is a quotation of Isaiah 53:12. So we should be very careful in assuming that when Jesus is talking in Luke 22 about an earlier circumstance, that he has uh, the cross in mind, because that seems to be added later. It's not from original to, to Mark. And we haven't even talked about uh, the Trinitarian formulation of the Father, the Word, and the Spirit in 1 John 5:7, which was uh, incorporated later by all accounts. This is something that causes a lot of people some consternation. Wait a, second, wait a second, if the Bible is the inspired message of God, how can he allow any kind of error or distortion in it? Well, one of the challenging issues, issues of faith, is that for whatever reason, God has chosen from beginning to now to work through his people in and despite the fact that he blemishes and fails and fears and limitations. And that's the way it is with this transmission of Scripture, too. You think about uh, God's perfect message coming through the very imperfect me method of humanity. Uh, God trying to manifest his purposes through a very uh, often disappointing group of people. And yet here, he also wants to preserve his message through the work of people. But we need to re keep reality in mind. There are thousands of fragments of the New Testament in Greek. Hundreds of complete or nearly complete copies. And that's just in Greek, let alone in Latin or Syriac or other languages that uh, the scriptures were translated into soon after they were written. Some of those nearly complete manuscripts date to within 300 years of the writing of the documents, originals, and some of the fragments come within decades of the original. I think some were written maybe 120, 130, uh, not long after the t originals were written. And even if all the copies of the New Testament were somehow lost, we could recover over 85% of the text just by looking at the quotations made by early Christians in their writings. And those quotations are really important, by the way, because they're a very important check, because these Christians would normally use the very specific phrasing of the text as their argument. And so uh, you'd have to suggest a conspiracy that not only are, are the people changed in the scripture themselves, but also uh, the framing of the writing of all of these church fathers, and nobody happened to notice. Uh, 
And now, by contrast, the next best attested work in Greek, Homer's Iliad, exists in 33 copies. And many ancient texts come down to us in a single copy that's often fragmentary. And so if we can't trust the New Testament to be reliable to its original, then we can't have any confidence about any works of ancient literature. And the whole enterprise is cast into doubt. So we don't need to do worry about that. We can have complete confidence that the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts from which our English versions are translated really represent what was written down by the inspired prophets and apostles long ago. And we can trust the scriptures provide that consistent message throughout time. So yes, the scriptures are contained in the Bible, and they're God-breathed, but what does that have to do with Christianity? Well, we saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, that the scriptures contain the inspired record what God has made known first to Israel and then in Jesus. To kind of understand what's going on here, especially when it comes to the New Testament and Christianity, we need to understand uh, some things about apostolic authority. In Romans 13 and verse 1, Paul declares that God has all authority and gives that authority to whom he wills. Matthew 20 and verse 18, Jesus declares that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So God gave Jesus authority. Now, in his life, Jesus selected and commissioned the twelve to serve as apostles, in Matthew 10. And they would bind and loose on earth what had been bound or loosed in heaven, in Matthew 18, 18. Not just Peter, all twelve. In John 14, 16, Acts 1 and 2, the, the, Jesus authorized the apostles, came through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in them. The Spirit who would remind them the things Jesus had taught who would guide them into all truth, to empower them to proclaim the gospel, and to confirm that message in that era with signs and wonders. Now, the apostles served as part of the foundation of the church, with the specific role they accomplished in Ephesians 2. They're considered part of the foundation of the church. Now, their authority, is very important, is not given to anybody else, because nobody else could serve as an apostle of Jesus in the sense that they did, because no one else had seen the Lord in his life, death, and resurrection. In Acts 1, 21-22, that was stressed about the adding of Matthias. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, Paul promised that the day would come when uh, speaking in tongues and prophecy and inspired knowledge would end, and that did cease at the end of the first century. And afterwards... So we can start seeing in, in 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, and in the message of the other Christians, that there was an insistence uh, that Christians would remind each other what had been said by the apostles. They immediately went back to the authority of the twelve and did not presume that that authority continued. And so the witness of the apostles about the gospel is all important in the first century, and it remains all important to this day. The apostles may be asleep, but they speak when we read their words that have been preserved in Scripture, and thus they continue to testify to every successive generation about the life, death, resurrection, lordship, and ascension, ascension and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, since the New Testament is by common confession the only reliable record of the witness of those apostles, what is written in the New Testament must be the standard of faith, of the faith in Christ, the doctrines and practices of Christians in the church that we can, as Paul encourages us in Colossians 3.17 to do, do all things in the name of the Lord. And this is why Jude is able to say that the faith has been delivered once for all to the saints. In Jude 1 and verse 3, it's a finished process. So that is why Christians would always refer back to what the apostles had said. Now, various groups in Christendom to this day may claim extra forms of authority. They also disagree on how to understand what is written in the New Testament. But notice that everybody uh, concedes that the New Testament has great authority and standing no matter what they may claim otherwise. And that is why we insist 
that all things that are taught and practiced come with some kind of biblical authority. After all, we are to do what Jesus commands, to live, walk as he walked in 1 John 2, 3-6. We need to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. It needs to be authorized by him. And we're told through Paul that the scriptures are sufficient to equip us for every good work in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. If we're going to understand anything about the life of Jesus or the proclamation of his gospel, we're going to have to turn to the New Testament because that's the original source from which all else flows. And at the same time, the apostles themselves frequently appealed to the Old Testament as a witness of what Jesus would do and about how God interacted with his people and that provided instruction. Uh, we see that in the preaching of the gospel in Acts 2, and the references we've made already to Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10. And so if we want to hear the gospel, we're going to have to turn to the Bible and to see what's in the pages of Scripture and to accept it. If we're going to hear the Word of God, we're going to have to open the Scriptures, hear what it says, and accept it. And so Christianity, therefore, uh, the Bible contains a standard for faith and practice. What we can know of what God has made known to man beyond what we can see in the creation and in man made in his image is what he has said in Scripture. And we use that to pattern our lives, to pattern the work that we do, and to give shape to the Christian faith. Now we've seen, therefore, that the Bible is the inspired record of what God has made known uh, to mankind represents the standard for Christian faith and practice. And now, a very important thing to keep in mind is that it's a written text, and therefore it requires interpretation. Now, a lot of people don't like interpretation, speak ill of it, and it presumes that interpretation must mean people imposing their own understanding of Scripture and using it for their own ends. And there's a lot of people who like to say, well, we can just simply understand what the Bible says without interpretation. Now, it's very true that a lot of times people do impose their own understanding of Scripture and do twist it to nefarious ends. But we can't presume that how we understand the Bible is just simply what it says. Because whatever we think the Bible says is itself based on interpretation to some degree or another. Any attempt to understand or to make sense of what is written in the Bible is interpretation. And it's a very necessary part of the process. And this is something we even see in Scripture itself. In Nehemiah 8 and verse 8, uh, when the Eli had the Eli, uh, Ezra, excuse me, had the scriptures read before all the people, he also uh, made gave the sense of it so that they could understand what it meant. It wasn't enough just to read the text; they needed to make sense of it so the people would understand its meaning. Because the meaning is of the importance. If it's read without meaning, uh, it's been a fruitless exercise. Even something as basic as, tr of tr as translation is interpretation. So like in Matthew 27, 46, when Matthew says that Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, and that says, which means, my God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? Languages don't maintain full equivalence in terms of word meaning or grammatical structure or a host of other things. And so in translation, translators are doing the best they can to make the words of the text clear in a target language while making... Uh, the best attempt to reflect whatever degree what is being literally and meaningfully communicated from the source language. But that is itself interpretation. And we look in Scripture, we see interpretation all the time. We see recaps, recapitulations. In Acts 7, in Acts 13, in Hebrews 9, uh, Stephen, Paul, and the Hebrews author, go back to the Old Testament, go back to some of the historical things or things about the temple, and kind of go over them quickly to try to explain them. And they focus on certain things uh, to make a point. 
there's an explanation of messenger events. The Hebrew author in Hebrews 7 will kind of just describe Melchizedek back from Genesis 15, uh, realizing that his audience probably doesn't automatically have reference to that story. Uh, so he goes back and explains who that is. There's an explanation and application of fulfillment. So in Matthew 1, uh, when Jesus was born, this was what was going to be said by the prophet Isaiah. That, you know, we have a, uh, an explanation. This is the fulfillment of what had already been said. There's an extension of a previous theme. In the parable of the vineyard and its servants in Matthew 21, Jesus is very intentionally taking an idea in Isaiah 5 and expanding upon it. There's all kinds of inferences based on the text. So Jesus, when he's refuting the Sadducees in Matthew 22, uh, will point out that uh, God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he's a God of the living, not the dead. In Galatians 3.16, that in your seed, Abraham was told, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Singular, which refers to Jesus. Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Hebrew author teases out about the fact that uh, God did not give Israel rest when he brought them into the land, which shows there's a Sabbath waiting for us. And even allegory, Galatians 4, 20 through 31. Uh, Paul will make an allegory out of... Um, Hagar and Sarah and Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And all of those are forms of interpretation. So the Bible testifies that we need to do this. Now, again, there are problems with interpretation. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Peter already warned that people were taking the words of Paul and they were twisting and distorting them, uh, perverting them to their own destruction, as they've done with other scriptures. People often do what's called eisegete, or read into Scripture their own ideologies or assumptions. People often read Scripture in terms of their own tradition or lenses. What's interesting is when you get into Bible interpretation, and you think about all the disagreements in Christianity, in, in the grand view of all that, there's not as much disagreement about the text of the Bible itself as you might imagine. There is some, but it's not terribly substantial disagreement about what the basic contextual understanding of the various texts in the Bible would be. But there seems to be no end of disagreement about how the Bible's message should be applied to life and practice. So that's why we need to avoid these abuses of the Bible. And that's why in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, Paul tells Timothy to strive diligently to handle the word of truth aright so that he would have no need to be ashamed. We need to be diligent that we don't impose our own views or worldview on the text. We need to understand the text first in its own context. We need to respect how the Bible features literary conventions like metaphor and allegory, features different genres for different purposes, historical accounts, prophecy, poetry, and understand accordingly. The solution to bad interpretation is not to pretend there is no interpretation. The solution to bad interpretation is good interpretation, sound interpretive practices. And that's what we need to strive for. We also need to appreciate that God get, uses wisdom when he gave us the Bible and that he expects his people to practice interpretation. If you notice, in the Bible, the story tells us that God has acted at specific times to manifest his power in a great saving act of history to show that he is loyal to his covenant and it's supposed to inspire future generations of Christians or Israelites to hold firm. We see that with Exodus, right, in Israel. We see that with Jesus' death and resurrection for the Christians. Now, the people of God will live in different contexts because if they live in different time periods, they live in different places or in different cultures, but the faith itself does not need to change. The substance of it has been delivered once for all to the saints in Jude 1 and verse 3. So how can we make sense of the Christian faith in the 21st century? Through the interpretive process. 
We need to make it so that we don't have to first understand how we would have followed Jesus in the 5th century, 10th century, 15th, even 20th centuries first. We're not constrained to do things in ways just because for a period of time in the history of the people of God, that's how those things were done. And think what's going on there in Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. Ezra and his associates are taking the text of the Torah, written a millennium earlier, and they had to make sense of it for Jewish life and practice in the Second Temple period. If they can do that, then we can take the text of the Bible and make sense of it for Christian life and practice in the 21st century so that we can glorify and honor God in our own day. And so, yes, the Bible does require interpretation. We're not going to be able to avoid that process. We're going to participate it in it if we want to admit it or not, and we need to interpret well and soundly. So we've spoken highly of the Bible. It's the record of God's message to mankind. The Bible itself speaks highly of God's instruction. The longest book chapter in the Bible, so to speak, in Psalm 119, 167 verses, and it's all uh, speaking highly of Torah, or law, or instruction of God. But we need to be careful lest we drift into what's often called bibliolatry, to give the glory and honor due to the author of Scripture to the Scriptures themselves. It's been very easy for people to conflate the Bible with the Spirit who has made it known. And we can understand why. The gospel is God's power for salvation, Romans 1.16. The word of God is living and active in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And if the gospel is a message we find in the word of God, and the word of God is contained in Scripture, we therefore recognize the Scriptures have power. Was not the word of God communicated in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek words which we now find in the Bible? Absolutely. But we need to keep in mind Jesus is the incarnate word of God in John 1, 1 and 14. But he is not the Bible. And after all, what does it mean in Romans 1 and verse 16 when Paul says that the gospel's message gives life? Well, the message, the gospel is God's power to salvation. It's the message of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, lordship, and return. We see in Acts 2, 17 and 1 Corinthians 15. And so the proclamation of this message brings the news of what God has done in Christ to people. Gives them that opportunity to respond so as to be saved by God in Christ. Which is the whole point of it. Matthew 18, Mark 16, Acts 4 and verse 12. But interestingly, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20, Paul uh, works out what would happen if Jesus actually hadn't been raised from the dead. That our faith is in vain, the preaching of the gospel is in vain. Uh, it, that's a very bad result. Therefore, if it actually didn't happen, uh, it has no power to save at all. So the gospel is God's power to save not because there are certain words written on a page uh, or that can be spoken, but because those words reflect actual reality. They speak accurately of events that took place in the days of Augustus and Tiberius Caesar. And as Paul said to Agrippa, did not take place in a corner in Acts 26, 26. And the gospel message, therefore, provides the means by which we can come to an understanding of what God has done in Christ through the Spirit, so we can put our trust in God in Christ. Likewise, what does it mean that the Word of God is living and active in Hebrews 4 and verse 12? It's very easy to associate the Word with the written Bible, because that's the means by which we come into contact with it today. But throughout Scripture, the emphasis is on the hearing of the message. Uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free in John 8, 32. Romans 10, 14-17, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves also, since Jesus is the word of God, the incarnate word of God, is, is the word of which the Hebrews author speaks, the written or incarnate word? And the answer is yes, that's true of both. Because the power of the word is manifest in its comprehension and the conviction engendered by that comprehension. Whether we have that comprehension because we've heard a sermon, we have seen and heard Jesus, or we have read the written word. 
And throughout, the empowerment of the word is accomplished by God through his spirit. We saw that in 2 Peter 1.20. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, Paul emphasizes it as well. So the gospel and the word of God record what God has done and what God has said with a desire to direct people to God. So all power resides in God again in Romans 13.1. The gospel message has power because God empowers it. The word has been delivered by the spirit and God through that spirit is empowering that word. And so in all things, the Bible is designed to direct our faith to God in Christ through the Spirit. In this way, the Spirit without a doubt works through the Word which He has made known through the apostles and prophets. No doubt about that. But we can't let the tail wag the dog. The Spirit empowers the Bible. The Bible is not God. The Bible is not the Spirit. It is not the fourth member of the Godhead. That's why we need to always keep in mind that the Bible is the record of the witness of God in Christ through the Spirit. It points to God. It encourages faith in Him. And so the Bible is a resource. It's a tool. It's a conduit of information. It is not the end. It's the means. We don't obey the Bible. We obey the Lord Jesus according to what He has made known in the Bible. And that's not an insignificant distinction. Because we cannot give the glory due to God and Christ through the Spirit to the Bible. It's a great resource. But to truly respect it and honor its message, we need to look to the God who makes it known and to trust in Him. So that's what the Bible is. It's the Old and New Testament, 66 books. They contain the records of what God spoke or made known to the prophets and in Jesus to the apostles. God inspired them to convey His message accurately. We need to understand what is made known in Scripture by interpretation, that we can rightly divide the truth and practice Christianity. But the Bible's not God. We should not make it into a God. We need to take what we learn in the Bible to serve God in Christ. So that's why we need to value the record of God's Word to mankind the Bible by seeking the God which it reveals and to obey Him in Christ through the Spirit. We're so glad you've joined us. If you've really enjoyed this, we encourage you to share it uh, with your friends and, and others on social media. If there's any way that we can be of, of service to you, maybe you'd like to consider other conversations we've had, maybe you'd like to take a Bible study or Bible correspondence course, uh, you'd like to come check us out. Any way we can be of service, let us know. You can find us online at VenetureToChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of service, if you'd like to contact me, you can find me at my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you and pray all goes well with you and have a great day.